Podcast family, welcome back to another episode. Every so often, we'll do an episode where we tackle a myth or a misperception about a variety of topics. We've tackled the issue of alcohol and metronidazole. I mean, right? You wouldn't want to take alcohol with flagyl because that causes a disulfurium and antabuse-like reaction. Well, does it? Not so much. Yeah, you got to go back and listen to that episode. And we've tackled some myths and myth perceptions about preeclampsia. Well, in this episode, I thought we would tackle some very common myths or at least misbeliefs about OB pyelonephritis. So I've decided to call this OB pylo fake news. Fake, fake, disgusting news. Oh, I couldn't resist. I had to go there. Fake news is tremendous. Really, really great. Uh, hey, don't worry. I'm a, I'm a bipartisan equal offender, all right? Because sometimes I'll take out the fake news when somebody calls me with, hey, you got an admission. Your residents have an admission. And I, I retort back, that's fake news, man. Fake news. Or I sometimes I'll, I'll flip the coin. And when a resident doesn't know uh, something that I'm asking them, I'll give them the very nice Biden retort. Oh, come on, man. Come on, man. Oh, come on, man. So I am a bipartisan offender. Don't worry. I'm going to get you both covered. (laughs) So in this episode, I want to tackle once again the OB Pilo fake news. After we come back from the quick break, I'm going to tell you what the three main myths, or at least again, misperceptions are regarding this very common condition. And we're going to get to the data and what professional societies have to say about these three misperceptions slash myths. So let's tackle our fake news really, really great. Our fake news in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. It's so interesting how things kind of all collide or come together at once. I mean, you've heard this saying, right? Oh, bad things come in threes. I don't know if that's true or not, but it sure seems that they do. Uh, but but things do kind of align uh, once you kind of put something out there. Things like, oh, my gosh, that's such and I just thought about that and something else pops up. I mean, I think I've mentioned that in previous episodes, right? How many times have you said, oh, I need to call Bob? And what happens later on that afternoon, Bob calls you. You're like, what? I mean, it's strange. It's, it's, there's an old book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. It's a fantastic book. But he always talks about, you know, the vibrations that you give out. Trust me, I'm not very new agey at all. But there's some of this stuff kind of makes sense. Because once you put your, we're all connected right, on some level, some consciousness, if you will, some spirit. Um, uh, and, and of course, if you once you throw something out, boom, it attracts something back. Anyway, it's very fascinating. Uh, and again, trust me, I'm not new agey at all. I'm very mainstream. But some of that stuff is very interesting from Napoleon Hill. Absolutely not what I'm talking about in this episode. 
<laughs> but the idea of how things get grouped together is we had this clinical consensus number four from August 2023, urinary tract infections in pregnant individuals. And and just last week, uh, I was talking with one of the residents who who's really kind of you know worried and stuck because we had a patient who was admitted for presumed polynephritis, and she stated that she had penicillin allergy. So my first thing is, yeah, all right, penicillin allergy. FYI, that's one of the things that we're going to tackle in this episode because penicillin allergy and it being a true allergy are two different things, and this has made recent press, and I'm going to tell you about that here in just a minute. And, and it's a good educational tool of how we should counsel patients um, when they say, oh, I have a penicillin allergy, and you ask them, well, well what happens? Well, I don't know. They just told me to say that. Okay. That, that's how, that, that's a lot, that happens a lot in my patient population. I don't know. My mom told me to say I was penicillin allergic. Why? <laughs> Why would she tell you that? That actually is, is a very historic thing back to the uh, first discovery of penicillin, and we'll walk down that in just a minute. Um, but, but the question was, so the resident was very, very concerned because this patient stated that she just didn't have a penicillin allergy. She used a word that was very concerning. She said anaphylaxis. Okay. I said, what is it? Yeah. She said, oh yeah. The patient said she has anaphylactic reaction to penicillin. Now, very few patients actually know that word. All right. So either they looked it up and like, Ooh, I'm going to say that. Or the doctor in the past said, tell them you have an anaphylactic reaction to penicillin. Okay. And, and so here was a conundrum. Cause you're thinking, why is this resident so freaked out? Just give her something else. Um, like what? You see, <laughs> so here's something we're going to dis- discuss in this episode, because you really are very limited in your choices of, of IV antibiotics for polynephritis if they have a true penicillin anaphylactic reaction. Okay. Now, I don't mean a minor thing. We're going to discuss all this in this episode. I mean, if they have true airway restrictive and reactive response to beta-lactams, then you, you, you just, I mean, think about it. Every single therapy for pilo is, is beta-lactam based. Think about it, whether it's cephalosporin, uh, uh, ampicillin, ANCEF, it all goes back to that penicillin moiety. So what do you use? Well, ACOG has an answer for that. Infectious Disease Society of America has an answer for that. It's really only one medication. Now, I'm not talking about in, once they go home in the outpatient oral antibiotics, right? Because that's another myth that we're going to tackle here. It's all related. Um, but in the IV acute management to cover gram positives, if you can't use a penicillin derivative, which includes all of the cephalosporins, um, Think about it. It's kind of it's a great point, right? And and if you're thinking, what are you talking about? I'd give her unison. Um, unison is penicillin based. Uh, so is zosin. Uh, piperacillin, um, uh, tazobactam. That that's that piperacillin is is penicillin based. Uh, unison, ampicillin, solbactam. That penicillin based. So if you have somebody who's truly anaphylactic. You only have one antibiotic option, so we're going to talk about that. Now, that's not a myth. That's not a misperception. That's reality, all right? But but here's the three myths, and we've already kind of alluded to them here. One is not unique to pilo, all right? So that's a disclosure. The first myth or misperception is if a patient states they're penicillin allergic, um, what is the chance that they really are? Well, the first myth is that they all are, and th- while we always believe our patient, always do, the problem is, is that 90% of the time, they're not. 90, that's 9 out of 10 
All right, I'm going to give you that data in a minute. So the first myth is, oh, no, they told me I was penicillin allergic. Yeah, that's probably a myth or a misperception. And if you're really worried about it and if you have time, uh, then you need to do penicillin uh, allergy testing. Of course, you can't do that when they present with pilo. That should be something that they address uh, uh, way before this and ideally before they get pregnant. All right. So the first myth that we're going to talk about is, is if that all reactions to penicillin mean that you're allergic. Absolutely not the case because some of those are normal side effects and we will discuss. The second has to do uh, in that same line of, well, what do you choose if somebody's truly anaphylactic? I'm going to tell you what that antibiotic is for the acute treatment of pilo. Um, the, the, that's all tied to the first myth, right? The penicillin allergic thing. The second myth that we're going to tackle has to do with pilo and fever, because this was the other concern that this resident had, which was, hey, I mean, I mean she's kind of, I mean, I suspect it's pilo. I really do, but she's afebrile. And so is that possible or am I overcalling this? Because obviously pilo has to have fever, right? Uh, yeah, as you can guess, guys, that's a myth. Now, it's a huge a clinical finding that makes it very sensitive and very specific, but it may not be there. And I'm going to give you that data coming up here in just a minute. And then the third issue has to do with, with the oral medication um, once the acute treatment is over, okay? So, or even just treatment for UTIs in general in pregnancy. And this has to do with the use of two medications, nitroforantoin, macrobid, and uh, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, uh, Bactrim. Okay, because there's a lot of myths and misperception about these two medications. Oh, you can't use it in the first trimester. You definitely don't want to use it in the third. But is that true or is that more of a myth or a misperception, a misbelief? You'll be surprised what ACOG actually says. All right. Uh, And yes, you can absolutely use Bactrim for pilo after the acute treatment. All right. Bactrim is great for pregnant pilo and non-pregnant pilo. And we're going to address some of the myths and misperceptions about Bactrim, specifically in the first and third trimester, and nitrofrantuin in the first and third trimester, okay? So our three topics, our three myths, the first is uh, all penicillin reactions or allergy. We know that that's not the case. I'm going to give you that data. Then we're going to talk about, and in, and in that vein, we're going to talk about, no pun intended, in the vein, I get it, <laughs> IV antibiotics. That was not trying to be funny, guys. That just came out. <laughs> in, in that same line, how about that? We'll talk about the antibiotic that you can use for treatment of pilo uh, if the patient has a true anaphylactic reaction. Second, fever uh, in pilo, necessary or not? The answer is obviously not. Uh, and then the third is um, macrobid or nitrofrantuin and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole bactrim in the first and third trimester. So that's the outline. That's where we're going to go. Before we get into the first idea, the first misperception around penicillin, and again, it's so important because the acute treatment for pilo is parenteral, it's IV antibiotics, and it's some form of penicillin as part of the of part of the package, right? Yes, you can give gentamicin for the gram negatives, um, uh, but remember that every other option includes a beta lactam. Uh, derivative. But before we get into that, let's just cover, we have to cover some basic info about UTIs in pregnancy, right? We just got to lay the foundation because this really is is is, is not obviously a, a rare finding. You know that. I mean, it, it, geez, a lot of our patients have UTIs, whether that's symptomatic as a UTI 
or bacterial colonization of the urine as ASB. ACOG says that UTIs in one form or the other is one of the most common perinatal complications affecting about 8% of all pregnancies. Of course, this is a whole spectrum, right? As we've already alluded to, on one end, you have ASB, which is completely asymptomatic, to the middle, which is symptomatic infection as cystitis. And then as you move over to the right-hand side, going left to right, you've got the most serious, which is upper tract infection, which is pyelonephritis. We all know that the most common bacteria is E. coli, but there's other pathogens involved as well, including Klebsiella and Enterobacter. Remember that UTIs, not just pylo, but UTIs have also been associated with some adverse pregnancy outcomes, including preterm birth and low birth weight. So in patients who present with threatened preterm labor, it's a low-risk diagnostic test with a potentially high yield to check for their urine because if you find that they have ASB even without symptoms, that may be a critical point of intervention to try to reduce preterm birth, especially since we don't have any other medication right now that, that can tackle preterm birth. And of course, you want to get ahead of that because ASB can progress to A. RDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And we've known for many decades that treatment of asymptomatic bacteria can actually reduce the incidence of pylo in pregnancy. And ASB isn't rare. According to ACOG, asymptomatic bacteria can be found anywhere from 2 to 10% of pregnant patients. So it's out there. Acute cystitis, on the other hand, in other words, presenting with signs or symptoms of a UTI of, of lower tract infection, occurs in about 1 to 2% of pregnant individuals. And it's the same rate for pylo. About 1 to 2% will have pyelonephritis during that pregnancy. But here's a clinical pearl. Pylo, which occurs most frequently in the second trimester, is one of the most common medical causes for a hospitalization during pregnancy. And podcast family, you know we can't talk about ASB or cystitis without talking about a urine culture. Remember that asymptomatic bacteria is defined as a clinically significant colony count of 10 to the 5th colony forming units per ml or higher. That's 100,000 of a pathogen. However, if a patient is symptomatic with classic symptoms of cystitis, some drop that number down to 100 CFUs per ml. Yeah, this all has to do with the sensitivity and the specificity of that urine culture in identifying a pathogen. So remember, ASB is 10 to the 5th, but Quote, according to the college, in the presence of symptoms in direct contrast to treatment for ASB, some authors suggest that treatment for colony counts as low as 10 to the second, that's 100, of a single organism may be appropriate, end quote. So the whole thing is, are, are, if your patient comes in and says, oh my gosh, I got to pee all the time and it really stings, and when I, when I sit on the toilet, nothing comes out or just little drips, and then her urine culture comes back as E. coli at 10 to the second, are are you going to go, ah, man, you really had me there. I mean, I really thought it was a UTI. I mean, you just nailed it on the symptoms. But your urine culture is not 10 to the 5th. It's only 10 to the 2nd. And so, yeah, I'm not going to give you anything. I mean, come on, guys, right? So ASB is 10 to the 5th. And, and if they're symptomatic, it's 10 to the 2nd. 
also remember that this is also covered in the GBS, Prevention of Early Onset um, uh, GBS Septicemia Bulletin from the College, that if you have 100,000 of group B strep on urine culture, but they're without symptoms, you need to treat that, right? That's ASB, and you give them intrapartum prophylaxis because they're colonized. However, if they are less than 10 to the 5th and they do not have any symptoms, then you do not have to treat them for group B strep bacteria at that time, although they still need intrapartum prophylaxis. Does that make sense? So, okay, you do a urine culture and it's group B strep. You treat them if it's ASB, defined as 10 to the 5th, CFUs per ml, and then you give them intrapartum prophylaxis unless they have a scheduled section. But if you find GBS and they are asymptomatic and it's less than 10 to the 5th, that does not require antibiotics because that's just considered colonization, but they still require intrapartum uh, treatment. Does that make sense? I know that feels, makes people uncomfortable because like, I'm not supposed to treat GBS in the urine. Well, it depends on the colony count and whether they have symptoms or not. So if they do have symptoms and you find GBS at any, at any count, even at 10 below 10 to the 5th, then yeah, treat them because that's cystitis. You see? So if you're asked on an oral board, at what colony forming units do you treat a patient uh, that you find on urine culture? Well, I'm assuming that that is with symptoms, then that's 10 to the 2nd because they're symptomatic. And if they're without symptoms, then it's 10 to the 5th. Okay, so without symptoms, 10 to the 5th, with symptoms, 10 to the 2nd. Just for point of reference, if you want to know where that GBS info was found, it's ACOG committee opinion, not a practice bulletin. It's a committee opinion number 797, uh, which came out in 2020, right? February 2020. And I, I know that makes people uncomfortable, right? Ooh, if I find GBS in the urine, I'm not supposed to treat it. Not if they're asymptomatic and it's below a certain level. So I'm looking at it right now. It's right in front of my face, guys. And it says... Group B strep bacteria at levels of 10 to the 5th or greater, either asymptomatic or symptomatic, warrants acute treatment and indicates the need for intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis at the time of birth. Fine. And then it goes on to say in the next bullet, identification of asymptomatic bacteria with GBS during pregnancy at a level less than 10 to the 5th does not require maternal antibiotic therapy during the antepartum period, but is an indication for intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis at time of birth, end quote. Now, so I, anyway, I just wanted to, I just restated what I said myself, but I wanted to read it directly from the committee opinion. But look at the committee opinion. This is interesting because I just caught this. Listen to what it says. <laughs> and guys, I'm not poking at anybody. Uh, I just, it's interesting, some of the verbiage, okay? Listen to this. It's an indication for intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis at the time of birth. Did y'all catch that? Did y'all catch it? Intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis at the time of birth. Isn't time of birth, by definition, intrapartum? Am I missing something there? It's, it's like I've mentioned in another episode when residents check out to me and they say, her past medical history. Well, I'm sorry, and I stopped them. Is that in a post, as opposed to her future history? What the hell? All history is past. You don't have to say past medical history. Just say her, her history. Her medical history includes, if, if it's history, I understand. I, I can read between the lines, uh, even in my 
Texas education, that that means past. Okay, history is past. So intrapartum and time of birth, to me, that kind of means the same thing. But what do I know? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yes, we're going to get into the whole penicillin thing in just a minute, but this is too good to not include here. And this comes directly out of the clinical consensus number four uh, from August 2023 from the college, okay? Because this whole idea of ASB, asymptomatic bacteria, is legit. That's real. We need to get that index, that initial urine culture to look for ASB because treating that greatly reduces the risk of not just cystitis, but of pilo, right? We've known that for a long time. That is still a thing from the college. However, there is one little population where repeat screening for ASB is definitely not advised. Remember, some patients you can keep screening, like those with sickle cell trait. In some studies, that was out of Alan Tito's work, uh, showed that uh, patients who have sickle cell trait may have higher incidence of ASB, so you got to look for that. But there is one group that that uh, after the initial screen, you should just kind of leave alone, okay? So yes, check for ASB with a urine culture at the initial visit. However... If you ever ask, and this is a very little uh, nuanced caveat to screening for ASB in a certain patient population in pregnancy, okay? And, and that's in patients who are pregnant with spinal cord injury. Did you all know that it's kind of controversial to screen for ASB in those patients? Now you're thinking, wait a minute, um, you want to do re- repeat screening in them because you want to put them under surveillance because they can't tell if their bladder's full. It makes sense, right? However, according to the college, and this is also uh, supported by the AUA, quote, in people with spinal cord injury, ASB seems to be protective against symptomatic UTI, and treatment of ASB can precipitate symptomatic UTI and contribute to antimicrobial resistance, end quote. So how about that? So there is one little caveat. See how everything has... A an exception, right? Every rule has an exception and a caveat. So yes, always scream for ASB. That's right. Unless your pregnant patient has a spinal cord injury, because sometimes you may not always want to treat their ASB. So that's a tricky one, okay? So I'm not saying not to get the initial urine culture because you can still pick up GBS. So ACOG says quote, additional screening for ASB beyond the single initial screen is not warranted because in those patients, um, ASB could be protective against uh, symptomatic UTI, okay? So that's a question because, well, how do you know if it's ASB or if it's a, if it's, if they have symptoms, if they have spinal cord injury, they may not be able to tell. And that is true. That's why it's important to uh, work with their neurologist. You can always ask urology for input. Um, so it's a fine line on this one. Thankfully, uh, unless you have a lot of patients that have spinal cord injury, I, I, I don't. But it's a nice uh, quinky dink and something that you may be asked. That do you always treat ASB? Well, in general, yes, unless they have spinal cord injury. Well, now that we've covered that as kind of foundational info, let's get into our first fake news, which is I'm allergic to penicillin. I can't take it. It's going to kill me. Now, and guys, please don't get mad. I'm not, uh, I'm, trust me, I'm a huge patient advocate. I believe what they say. But whenever I get a patient who says, well, I can't take penicillin, I just can't. Uh, you've got to do a lot more due diligence and ask, 
what what happened? Oh, I got this really weird rash. Oh, okay, I dig it. Yeah, that's kind of what penicillin does. Um, that's a side effect. Uh, or or if they say, oh, I, I took it and they gave me a bracelet. They said I could never take it again because I required a tube down my throat to breathe. Oh, okay. Now that that seems more legit. And by the way, even anaphylaxis can resolve itself with decreased exposure as years go by. Did you all know that? Yeah, once you're anaphylactic, it's not like you're anaphylactic for life, it can actually get better. That's not my statement. This is actually a statement from the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. That's a big old name for an association, right? So let's, let, let me tell you what. This professional association that's called the Triple AI, right? So A-A-A-A-I, that's A-A-A-A-I. <laughs> That's why I guess it just go the triple AI because going, hey, according to the AAAI, that's just too many eyes. So the <laughs> look, guys, I'm so I don't look. Yeah, I won't tell you what time we're taping this, but it's kind of like late and I'm getting kind of giddy. But it's the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma and Immunology Four A's and an I. And they actually have a whole bulletin on this that, wow, ever since penicillin was first discovered 1928 y'all remember who did that i always ask my medical students it's a great pimp question by the way i know it's probably not pc to say pimp question but is that what y'all called it because or is that just a in a texas thing like when they hammer you with questions right they're, they're pimping you questions i don't know the history of that but i know the history of penicillin which was 1928 and here's a, again ask your students just get them in a corner who discovered penicillin um and see if they pee on themselves and the answer was alexander fleming oh remember alexander fleming so alexander fleming 1928 was when penicillin was discovered and after it became more widespread in use then people started having some weird rashes because that's what some antibiotics do and they're like ah this whole penicillin allergy thing emerged, okay? Now, in the U.S., about 10% of patients have a reported allergy to penicillin, 10%. This recently made news because the U.K. also took a look at national databases, and, and they took a look at their information and found that about 6% of patients in the U.K. reported that they were penicillin allergic, right? So U.S. is 10%. UK said around 6%. The point is, it's not a small number. And here's why it matters. Because if those patients were truly penicillin uh, allergic, where they could not take it uh, due to a life-threatening reaction, then man, I mean, we they could be in harm's way because they could be restricted from some very effective antibiotics for bacterial conditions, right? And that's what the UK's message was when they put out this recent uh, story that, man, if you're saying you're penicillin allergic, figure out why you're saying that. I mean, did somebody tell you that? Was it just a little rash? What was it? Because you don't want to limit yourself from effective therapy. And here's why this matters. Because the UK and the US found the exact same thing in those patients who stated that they were allergic. Everybody ready? Up to 90% or more. Okay, and I don't know how you get the or more, but we'll call it the floor. 90% who stated that they were penicillin allergic were actually not when they had formal testing. Wow, how about that? And according to the AAAI, quote, most people can lose their penicillin allergy over time. And listen to this. Here's a clinical pearl. I'm reading this directly from the AAAI statement. Quote, 
even people with a history of severe reactions like anaphylaxis can lose their allergy over time. End quote. How about that? So, one, believe the patient. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. But trust and verify. There was a famous politician in the 80s that would always say, oh, I trust what they tell me. I just need to verify that. And that's exactly what we should do as clinicians, as investigators, as scientists, right? Because up to 90% to more, and some studies say 93% of those who state that they are penallergic are actually not. And, and again, think about how we're so restricting our medication, like in our patient. Now, in this case, the patient I told you in the intro, she stated she was anaphylactic, all right? Now, we didn't know how long ago that was. We didn't want to mess with it. Pharmacy was not going to dispense some beta-lactam derivative because it was on her chart. And and so you see this this issue is that if somebody says they're allergic and there's something that you treat them with that's beta-lactam-based, you, you run into this, this very limited uh, option uh, of therapy. And specifically as it relates to pilo in pregnancy, I'm going to give you that what that one medication is that's recognized by ACOG, one medication. Because everything else is based on a penicillin derivative, even the cephalosporins, zosin, um, um, unison, whatever. They're all required for gram-positive coverage, some degree of penicillin family. This story out of the UK came out on September the 28th, 2029, and it was a study that looked at penicillin allergy through the UK, and this study was done by the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, and they found the exact same thing that the AAAI concluded, which is, quote, over 90% of patients were found to not have an allergy when fully assessed, end quote. And the issue is, again, I don't want to, you know, burn this thing down to the ground. I think we've already covered it. But as the uh, Royal Pharmaceutical Society stated, quote, many individuals are at low or very low risk of having a genuine penicillin allergy. And by having them listed as penicillin allergic severely restricts their antibiotic options when a bacterial infection is present. So all of that is a direct quote from the RPS, the Royal uh, Pharmaceutical Society. Uh, And it just goes to show, yes, we believe patients, but we trust, but verify. All right. So we are on our first myth or misperception. And remember, that's that all kind of reactions to penicillin are true allergy. Of course, we know that that's not the case because itching, uh, especially without a rash, is is considered a low risk for allergy. That's just simply a reaction to the medication, okay? A moderate risk uh, for anaphylaxis are those who have itching with a urticarial kind of a rash. And then the most severe, of course, are those with a true anaphylactic reaction, especially if it was recent uh, from the point of this new infection. So, uh, and again, ACOG does put that penicillin uh, risk of allergy into three categories, right? Low risk, medium risk, and then high risk. And a lot of that is also found in the prevention of early onset GBS uh, septicemia for the child. So you can go back and look at that as well. But in this new ACOG clinical consensus number four, it does give one antibiotic name that is appropriate in patients with beta-lactam allergy. And it's the only one that's given, which is uh, estreonam, right? So estreonam can be used in patients with beta-lactam allergy. And that dose is one gram 
IV every 8 to 12 hours. Remember, we're talking about for OB pilot, okay? Oh, yes, you can use other things that are not penicillin-based like uh, uh, nitrofrantoin or sulfa. You can do that after the acute pilo is treated. Uh, you cannot use uh, oral medications uh, that's preferred by the college for pilo because of the nausea vomiting that can go with the original disease manifestation. So it's IV antibiotics, of course, until a febrile. Usually that takes around 24 to 48 hours or so before you have to start looking for other causes. But remember that while there are other non-penicillin options that are oral, the initial treatment of pilo is inpatient and it is intravenous. Okay, so the only thing that you're left with with a true beta-lactam allergy, a true high-risk uh, anaphylactic reaction is estreonam at one gram IV every eight to 12 hours. All right, podcast family, when we come back, let's tackle fever and pyelonephritis. Yes, it's a very common symptom and sign in pilo with pregnancy, but does its absence rule out the condition? Let's talk about that next. We used to have very restrictive criteria for certain diagnoses, right? Like intramniotic infection always should have fever with it. I know that's in the current statement from the college, but that's actually being reworded right now because having the patient or mandating the patient have fever actually can delay appropriate use of antibiotics when other signs or symptoms are present, all right? So this is not unique to OB pilo because we've known this uh, in maternal sepsis documentation. If you take a look at the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, their console series number 67, which is on maternal sepsis, they actually make this clear. And it's a great shift in our mindset uh, that fever must be present, especially if they got sepsis, right? I mean, if they're septic, you'd figure they'd have high fever. And yes, while the majority do, not all of them do. This SMFM console series number 67 just came out last month, remember, in September of 2023, and it tackled this issue of fever and not mandating that it be present for a diagnosis of maternal sepsis. In this SMFM console series number 67, I'm looking at it right now, it states, fever is not necessary or sufficient to identify sepsis. So yes, fever is a, is a pretty telling sign. Um, but again, it, it may or may not be present. And the same holds true, guys, here for OB Pilo. Yes, it's super helpful if they present and they have fever and CVAT and your urine. That's like, oh, they've got, they've got the winning match. This is a triple threat, right? But I learned it that it's two of the three. Any two of the three uh, is enough for a working diagnosis of pilo, fever, CVAT, and dirty urine. Now, dirty urine uh, is, is the one that you're really banking on, right? Because that's the one, that's the, if the source of infection is coming from the urine, you would figure that a UA would find it. And, and talking about a UA, let's just briefly talk about, I'm going to get back to the fever in a minute, but what is the most sensitive and what's the most specific finding for UTI on a urine analysis? In this new ACOG clinical consensus number four from August 2023, it, there's some really nice little pearls here. Let me just give them to you quickly. So if you ever asked, boom, you know these answers very quickly. Pyuria, that's five white blood cells per high power field on micro 
or leukesterase, all right? So seeing white blood cells or having leukesterase on a dip has 97% sensitivity for UTI. So super sensitive, but not specific. Why? Because you can have a lot of contaminants in, in, from the vagina, like leukorrhea, which by definition is white blood cells uh, that can uh, contaminate the sample. So pyuria, five or more white blood cells, or leukesterase, because pyuria, leukesterase, same deal, right? White blood cells have great sensitivity but lack specificity. Nitrites, on the other hand, are the most specific finding. They are 94 to 98% specific for a UTI. How about that? But of course, nitrites are not sensitive because they're not present in all UTIs because not all bacteria produce nitrites. So the most sensitive is pyuria or leukesterase, but they lack specificity. Nitrites, on the other hand, are very specific, but lack sensitivity. Isn't that just perfect? That's how life works. But if neither nitrites nor leukesterase are present, then UTI is very unlikely with a negative predictive value of anywhere from 78 to 98% according to the college, all right? So we covered the most sensitive, that's white blood cell stuff, the most specific, which is nitrites, and if both are negative, maybe you should think about something else. Now, back to this whole fever issue, because the fever in Pilo is a big deal, right? And it is. However, there is a nice publication from the American Journal of Perinatology from 2019. The title was Pyelonephritis in Pregnancy, Relationship of Fever and Maternal Morbidity. The first author was DeYoung. Now, here's what they found. Yes, absolutely true. The vast majority of patients who had pilo, like 77%, presented with fever. However, the remainder out of the 100% did not. And the reason was because pyelonephritis can have spikes and troughs in fever. So ups and down and ups and down. Or if they take an antipyretic before presentation, they may be afebrile when you see them. So it's important to ask if you suspect UTI, ask them about fever at home. Now, you would think that they would have volunteered that with a history, but, you know. Weirder stuff happens. So, and, and the other uh, thing from the maternal, from SMFM's uh, consult series number 67 was, if, if they look sick, right, they're tachycardic, they just don't feel well, but they're afebrile, uh, think about the urine. I mean, one of the most common places for undiagnosed infection of, of just looking puny, right, of having uh, SERS criteria, it's probably going to be something with the urine. So even though they're afebrile, Check their urine, especially if they have got CVAT uh, and they just don't feel right. They've got some weird nausea and you've ruled out labor. Look for the urine. Yes, your, your other viral workup is good to check for influenza, good to check for COVID. But remember that one of the most common sites of, of patients coming in because the most one of the most common reasons for medical admissions in pregnancy, remember, is is symptomatic uh, urinary tract infection. Now, I'm not saying that they all have pilo, but I'm saying that if they look that puny, then consider uh, the urine as a source and consider upper tract infection, uh, especially with tachycardia uh, and other um, visceral symptoms like uh, nausea and vomiting. All right, family, that is myth number two. So does pilo need fever? 
Well, it's a very telling sign and symptom, but some patients may not have it. So that is a myth or misperception. Yes, it's great to have it because it increases the likelihood that you're right, thinking about a UTI or upper tract infection. But just because they don't, just like with maternal sepsis, don't delay the diagnosis. Don't delay giving them antibiotics um, because they can decompensate very quickly. And that new thing on intramniotic infection, uh, remember the past, it said, oh, I have fever, 38 degrees, um, and it's suspected IAI. I, I get that. But again, um, the clinical consensus working group did rewrite that. I don't, I don't think that's out yet, but it is in, in press right now, uh, in, in formulation, I guess, right now, that they're, they're softening that term so that you don't delay appropriate antibiotics when the rest of the clinical picture looks like that. You're like, well, what's the clinical picture? Well, fetal tachycardia, uterine tenderness, foul smelling, uh, you know, vaginal uh, discharge, amniotic fluid. Um, but you go, hey, well, they're afebrile. You know what, man? Don't wait for them to have fever. If the baby's tachycardic, the baby's got fever. And then mom will spike uh, subsequently. So there's, yes, fever, intrapartum, is IAI to proven otherwise, but without fever, but other suggestive symptoms like fetal tachycardia, uterine tenderness, uh, foul-smelling amniotic fluid, give that patient some antibiotics. Oh, man, we're running out of time. Let's get to uh, nitrofrantoin and Bactrim because that is also referenced in the August clinical consensus number four from the college. Um, Bactrim is always thrown under the bus. Now, let, let me now let me be honest here. Bactrim is, is okay. Let me just say right now, it is okay to use, even in the first trimester and even in the third. I know what you're thinking. What are you talking about? You're going to get conrictorous if you use it in the third. Are you, though? I mean, yes, it's theoretical. It is. It's a real possibility, but it's real, really, really rare. And I'm going to give you these numbers uh, here in just a minute. Uh, but there are some antibiotics that are just still no-go in pregnancy. Tetracyclines, that's no-go because of the cartilage and musculoskeletal uh, adverse issues, fluoroquinolones, arthropathies, even though that incidence is pretty low, that's still pretty much a no. But nitrofurantoin in the first and even in the third trimester, totally okay. But remember, of course, that ideally you get that culture and it's sensitive to it or else why would you be giving it? And Bactrim that has historically not been used in the first trimester because of some theoretical issues, we now know, yes, there definitely is role and it's okay. Now, nitrofrantoin, because it doesn't really get good renal levels, traditionally has not been part of the of part two treatment of polynephritis. Part one is the IV antibiotics. Part two is the oral antibiotics to complete 14 days of therapy. Uh, but but that depends on, on who you read and who you listen to. The most conservative is, hey, you've got a lot of other antibiotics. Use a urine culture to guide your treatment and pick something oral on that list to complete the 14 days. And then you can do nitrofrantoin as suppression of desired. The other camp is, hey... If the acute treatment of pylo is done and the kidney is is no longer infected, they clinically are well, there's no more systemic symptoms, they don't have CVAT, then if, if that bacteria is sensitive to nitrofrantoin, then you can complete the 14 days of treatment with it. I don't know, I, I, I'm not very comfortable with that because nitrofrantoin really does not hit the kidney and you're still in the acute phase of therapy, but just know that there are two camps that you do not use nitrofrantoin for 
either part of, of pyelonephritis and pregnancy, the acute IV antibiotics or the oral second part for 14 days. And then the other, which is a little bit more liberal, a little bit more um, loosey-goosey is, hey, they're better. It's sensitive to it. I'm going to give it to them anyway. So I'm just saying what I do, I do not use nitrofrantoin or I try not to use it in the acute treatment of pylo, obviously not in the acute IV phase or in the oral phase, uh, unless I just don't have anything else because there's just a whole lot of other antibiotics that can be used in this place. And remember, for OB pylo, there's two camps, right? After the initial treatment of 14 days, then you can either keep the patient on antibiotic suppression, that's okay, or you can not do that and just do uh, monthly urine cultures. Uh, it's, it's whatever you feel uh, would benefit the patient best. But let's talk about uh, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, and nitrofrantoin as covered by the College Clinical Consensus Number 4. Don't worry, guys. We're almost at the end here, okay? This is our last myth that we're covering. We talked about the misperception about penicillin. We talked about fever and pylo. And now we're talking about nitrofrantoin and uh, Bactrim. And I'm so thankful that ACOG put this in here because, man, you're talking about some misperceptions or fears. Let me just read you straight out of clinical consensus number four for sake of time because it really is very reassuring. Quote, Nitrofurantoin has low resistance rates and is effective against many pathogens common in pregnancy. Moreover, nitrofurantoin is concentrated and achieves therapeutic levels in the bladder, making it a reasonable first-line option for lower urinary tract infections. All right, podcast family, here's an important point. The college goes on to say, quote, There are some data regarding possible findings of congenital anomalies associated with nitrofrantoin and Bactrim if used in the first trimester. However, these data are mixed and have methodological limitations. The college goes on to say, Nitrofurantoin and sulfonamides are reasonable in the first trimester if no appropriate alternatives are available. End quote. Let's stop there. So don't just go to them as first line, but if there's nothing else, if, there's, uh, if the bacteria is resistant to all the other good stuff, then please use Macrobid or Bactrim in the first trimester because, quote, they are reasonable in the first trimester if no appropriate alternatives are available, end quote. The college goes on to say, Additionally, use of nitrofrantoin in patients with glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase has been associated with rare findings, including pulmonary toxicity and hemolytic anemia, and should be avoided in these patients. Now, of course, most patients should know that they have G6PD deficiency, but they may not. But just something to keep in mind if they start having some weird pulmonary issues, but thankfully it is rare, all right? So remember, of course, natrofrantoin and glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency having a weird reaction. And lastly, the college states, quotes, use of nitrofrantoin and sulfonamides in the second and third trimesters can continue as first-line treatment for a UTI, end quote. Did y'all get that? Nitrofrantoin and sulfonamides, second and third trimesters, yep, still listed as first-line treatment. I do have to give the complete fair balance here because there is some who advocate, especially in the first trimester with Bactrim use, uh, because of the trimethoprim 
trimethoprim effect on folic acid. Trimethoprim may lower the levels of folic acid. So some do recommend that if a patient takes Bactrim in the first trimester, that they consume anywhere from 400 to 800 micrograms of folic acid daily, all right? Not everybody does, but it is a very conservative thing to do. So remember, if your patient is going to use Bactrim, in the first trimester, the clinical pearl is it is definitely safe and it's pretty uh, risk-free to increase the level of folic acid because trimethoprim may lower the level of folic acid. And to continue that higher dose for two weeks after the medication stops, all right? So, of course, they should be taking folic acid in the first trimester or preconception anyway. But if you're going to use Bactrim in the first trimester, there is some expert opinion that additional folic acid, up to 800 micrograms of folic acid per day, up to two weeks after the medication is taken, can be recommended just to be safe. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered a lot of info in this episode. So I hope you think it was really, really good, really tremendous, really, really good. (laughs) I can't help it Uh, as we break our fake news, fake news. Uh, Look, it's getting ready for election season. This is not a political statement at all. I just think you have to find some kind of humor in the craziness that is life currently, okay? Come on, man. See, there you go. I threw in a little bite in there to balance it out, all right? All right, podcast <laughs> All right, podcast family. As always, we're thankful for you. <laughs> oh, my God, please keep listening to the show, all right? I promise, I promise. I'll get back to a normalcy on the next episode. Thanks for being part of our podcast community, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls. Come on, man. <laughs>